This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. And let's take out our Bibles. And please turn to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13. So we'll, be, we'll be reading uh, quite, a, quite a big chunk, so you, you need to have your Bibles to follow along uh, with what the Bible says. Sister Sophia will be reading the passage for us. Today's Bible passage is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 13. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. He asked Amnon, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Wouldn't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight, so I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight, and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom, so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him. Don't force me. Such a thing would not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He would not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, Get up and get out. No, she said to him, Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, Get this woman out of my sight and bolted the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. And Tamar put ashes on her head 
and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother, Absalom, said to her, Has that Amon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious, and Absalom never said a word to Amon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep sharers were at Baal-hazor near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom said to the king, went to the king and said, Your servant has had sharers come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? No, my son, the king replied. All of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he sent him with Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, Listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. While they were on their way, the report came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. The king stood up, tore his clothes, and lay down on the ground. And all his attendants stood by with their clothes torn. But Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My lord, the king should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled. Now the man standing watch looked up and saw many people on the road west of him, coming down the side of the hill. The watchman went and told the king, I see men in the direction of Oranem on the side of the hill. Jonadab said to the king, See, the king's sons have come. It has happened just as your servant said. As he finished speaking, the king's sons came in wailing loudly. The king too and all his attendants wept very bitterly. Absalom fled and went to Tamai, son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned many days for his son. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amon's death. 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 23. 21. The king said to Joab, Very well, I will do it. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay him honor, and he blessed the king. Joab said, Today, 
your servant knows that he has found favour in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. Then Joab went to Geisha and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, He must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him, he would weigh it and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar, and she became a beautiful woman. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king. But Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, Look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, Why have your servant set my field on fire? And Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you and said, Come here so I can send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geisha? It would be better for me if I was still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face, and if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom, and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, Sophia, for reading the very long and difficult passage. I hope you have your Bible open as we look at this passage together um, this afternoon. Be great if you have your Bible open to 2 Samuel chapter 13 as well as chapter 14. Why don't we ask the Lord to help us on this passage? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here this afternoon. We thank you that your word speaks truth even when it's difficult. We pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will be with us this moment as we look at 2 Samuel 13 and 14. Help us to hear, to understand, and to be able to trust in you in a world that's full of shattered lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, many years ago, I was in Perth and I was trying to buy a cheap bicycle so that I can travel to the theological college, to the church that I was working with, and back home, and kind of keep myself healthy. And I know there's this really long slope that I have to run, so I'm like hoping to get a good bike. So I managed to go to Gumtree, which is our version of Carousel here, and I managed to get a really good-looking um, racer bike for 100 bucks. So I went to the house, I, negoti- I didn't negotiate, I just wanted to make sure that it's mine. Uh, the deal went really well until the owner was trying to maneuver the bike out from his house out to the front yard for me. And when he made a turn, the bike smashed into this vase and it broke and shattered into pieces. 
from the look of his face and him forgetting to ask me for money, I reckon the bus worth a lot more than the hundred bucks that he uh, charged me for that bike. No, it was painful to see that beautiful vase shattered into pieces. But you know what? It's even worse when you and I see shattered lives. In this time, in our lives as we look around, because of unchecked wickedness for that one incident, and lives get shattered. Last year, 24th May, now Teacher's Day just passed, and this came to mind. Last year, 24th May, there was this 18-year-old gunman. He went to Rob Elementary School in Texas. He gunned down 19 kids, two teachers. Now, after the uh, math, in the aftermath of the massacre, family members were sharing photos, memories of their loved one, those big dreams, those small joys. Someone said, my 10-year-old aspired to be a lawyer someday. Another, a marine biologist. Still another student was saving up for a trip to Disneyland. But all those dreams, all those wishes, they were shattered by one single evil act. And some argued the lack of restrictions to the possessions of firearms. Justice could never be given to these children and the teachers who died. Now, today's passage unravels this terrible shattering of David's household because of injustice as well as inaction. Last week, we saw the adultery and the murder David committed against Uriah's household. The consequence was this, that God announced to David in chapter 12, verse 10, last week, that the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me. So today, as we enter chapter 13 that we read just now, we witness the mirroring of David's sexual sin and murder by his own sons. Now, the chapter begins with this very ominous picture uh, of Amnon, the firstborn son of David. He's actually the crown prince, but he was a very wicked man. We were told he was obsessed with the sister of Absalom, the son of David, meaning that he's obsessed with his own sister. He wanted a forbidden relationship just like his father David did. So while David desired the wife of another man, Amnon desired incestuous relationship with his sister. Now, Amnon's desire was so great, it became obvious to his advisor, friend, cousin, Jonadab. Jonadab observed it and he asked and wanted in. He coaxed Amnon to tell him what's wrong. And so Amnon told him that he was in love with his sister. And this Jonadab, called shrewd or cunning or wise, instead of warning Amnon that it's an abomination amongst the people of God, he tells to Amnon, you know what? It's a way to get what you want. It was horrendous. Now, scholar commented that Jonadab was like the serpent of Genesis 3 because in this chapter, he's going to tell Amnon, go for what your heart's desire, whatever forbidden fruit, you are the crown prince, isn't it? Just grab it. But next chapter, he's going to accuse Amnon as the rapist that deserves to die. He's both the tempter and the accuser. And so we have this crafty Jonadab there and Amnon listen to him. At this point, we want to ask, who can stand against sin to be the promised Davidic king? 
because Amnon was meant to be the crown prince. But here we read Amnon's execution of the wicked plan. So at the advice of Jonadab, verse 6, look at it. Amnon lay down, he pretended to be ill. His beloved father, David, came and visited him. And Amnon requested his sister, Tamar, to come to his house, prepare bread for him while he watched her and then eat from her hand. Just the way that Amnon explains it to David should have sent shivers and worries. But instead, David was meant to be the shepherd king who protects his sheep from lion and wolves, sent his own daughter into the lion's den. And so unpacked the scheme of Amnon Jonadab. Poor Tamar, she went to Amnon's house as instructed by his own father. He was kneading the dough, baked the bread, all the while with Amnon staring at her. Now the event was so unnerving, it should send shivers to us just trying to read it and uh, trying to preach it. Now, when the bread was baked, Tamar served it to Amnon in the pan, but he refused to eat. Instead, he commanded everyone except Tamar to get out. And then he says to Tamar, bring the bread to me in my bedroom so I could eat from your hand. Now, what comes next is this excruciating conversation that we hear in verse 11. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. By now you have read that he has been calling, or Tema has been addressed as sister again and again and again. This was so shocking to Tema that she tried to resist, so she begged Amnon not to force her. And then she tried to reason that, What shame it is upon me and you, the crown prince, will be called that wicked fool of Israel. And when that failed, she tried to offer another alternative. Speak to dad. Surely he will still allow this forbidden marriage. She pleaded and pleaded on deaf years. But being stronger than her, Amnon raped his sister, verse 14. And then, verse 15, he hated her because now... She became the source of his own ruin. Then he further shamed her in verse 17 by calling his personal assistant to come and drag, he should say, this woman out of my sight and bolt the door. So as Tema went away weeping loudly in torn clothes, the whole kingdom of David would have heard of this. Anyone with a bit of a year we have known this. It's no secret. It's open, it's open news of what happened to Tamar, the disgrace she has. And so Amnon revealed what was in him. It was not love, but wicked lust. Because love are meant to build and meant to nurture. That's what love does. But lust grabs and destroys. Now here's the thing. Amnon... His name actually meant faithful. Because nothing of a faithful king to be. It's a beautiful name for a king to be. But he was not a faithful person. He was a wicked fool. The horror of sexual abuse, power abuse, is so heart-wrenching. And it happens even in our time. Like a shattered vase, Tamar's life was shattered into pieces. Who can heal Tamar and restore a shattered life. 
Well, the passage goes on, verse 21, when King David heard this, he was furious. But anyone would be furious. You would be furious, and so am I. But what was shocking in this passage, look here in verse 21 onwards, is that David did nothing. No, he, as a father, he may not know how to restore the shattered life of his daughter, but as a king, he was responsible to administer justice on God's behalf, but he did not. In fact, we were never told if he even visited his daughter again. And so for two years, Amnon continued as if nothing happened. There were whispers around by this wicked fool of Israel that the king condones and who may be the next king, who knows? And they also had whispers of the disgraced princess that was left hidden in the house of her brother Absalom. Now the inaction of David became the seed that breeds the next murderous crown prince, Absalom. We read here in verse 22, look at it with me. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Now this is the last we heard of Amnon's, uh, Absalom's uh, sister Tamar. But I think Absalom would never want that to be forgotten in history. And so he had, she, he had three sons. Chapter 14 tells us, we don't know his, their names, but... Yeah, he has one daughter and she was named Tamar. So even while the sister is hidden in the palace, his daughter that grew up to be beautiful, that everyone stares at her and sees her, are reminded there is another Tamar, the great disgrace of that crown prince, Amnon. And Absalom himself perhaps saw that he would bear the sword of justice and he would become the sword that would never depart from David's house, as God declared in chapter 12. Verse 10. Now as we go on, the plot just thickens more and more because two years passed since the wicked scene of Amnon, the inaction of David, and comes the sheep-shearing season. And Absalom has this occasion. He decides that he's going to run a huge party just 15 miles away from the capital, not very far. And so he invited all the brothers along. And he went to David and said, Dad, come and join us for this party. Bring your servants, bring your helpers. David, look at this, it's way too exaggerated. And he decides it's not a good idea for me to go. So he says, thanks, no thanks. Absalom says, no, you must come. Absalom says, no, but um, no. David says, no, but I give you my blessing. And Absalom look at him and say, in that case, you send Amnon as your representative. Now, of all the brothers, of all the princes, you know, Absalom is, um, is the third son. Okay, so anyone else who can say no to Absalom is only one, Amnon, because the second brother, Caleb, or Caleb was never mentioned. Maybe he's dead. So Amnon is the only one who can say no to Absalom. But this time around, he can't because David, his dad, says to him, you represent me and you go. And so now, Amnon, who can say no, can't say it. So David, in his own words, sent his own son to the slaughterhouse. So there we have, imagine this sin. Now earlier we mentioned Amnon's name was Faithful, but he was a wicked fool. But guess what the name Absalom means? It actually means father of peace, or my father is peace, but Absalom is nothing 
of a peace. He is the father of war and rebellion. And he comes right here at this point. In verse 28, 29, look at it. It begins here, Absalom, or shall we say, the father of peace, ordered his men, Listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Now, this is the rise of Absalom because now he's trying to speak as a righteous rebel who now executes justice that his father did not. So because of the inaction of King David over the two years, the hatred in Absalom grew to not just hate Amnon, he starts to despise his father. And this is the beginning of the counterfeit judge that's going to come out in chapter 15. He becomes the counterfeit justice and the counterfeit judge who will eventually plot a coup to eradicate his dad from the throne. So Absalom right now is raising up men who will revolt at his command to kill the crown prince and the future the king himself. And so Absalom's men murdered Amnon and all the king's sons fled. Now, imagine a picture of me as the, the, the murder happens 15 miles away. All the sons fled. They rode their mule and they were rushing back home 15 miles away. But somehow the news arrived before all the sons could come, either by telegram or if not, the rumor was already brewing all along. And the rumor came, the report came, and says, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, not one of them is left. And David, when he heard the report, he tore his clothes, he lay on the ground, his servants all tore their clothes, and they were all grieving, and the whole place was in a mess. And then in walked this really calm man. Guess who's that? Jonadab. In case you forget which Jonadab, the passage tells you again, is uh, the cousins of the... Absalom Amnon, the nephew of David, he comes in cool as evening. And we wonder if his hand was in this because he said this, verse 32. Look at it with me. He said this to David. My Lord, should not think that they kill all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My lord, the king should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead. Only, only Amnon is dead. Now, as you read this conversation by Jonadab to David, some of these details went beyond a clear or even clever speculations, unless he already knew that this was planned. And there were advice here that both accused Amnon but also support Absalom, spinning this murderous plot into this honorable vengeance. He said, it has been Absalom's expressed intention for two whole years. My Lord, the king should not be concerned. Only Amnon is dead. And when the watchman saw all the, the men coming back, before they arrived, Jonadab said to the king, see, exactly what I tell you. How wicked Jonadab is. If he had known the plot, he should have been condemned for not telling the king. But perhaps he didn't just know it. He was involved in it. He was a man as wicked as his words. Now here's the thing. Jonadab is not that significant 
in this whole story or account of David's kingdom. But he did appear. And as commentators may say, it is that force that you cannot be reckoned with because it's just like the serpent seeing the downfall and the shattering of God's kingdom. So meanwhile, Absalom fled to his father, grandfather, Talmai, son of Amihud, the king of Geisha, and stayed there for three years. Now here's the thing, David's failure in all of this to administer justice caused deeper and deeper cracks into the Davidic household. David's failure to execute his wisdom allowed both brothers to manipulate him as well as the others using his authority as king. David's failure to exercise his care left Tamar in a lifelong of desolation rather than any chance of restoration. David's failure in reality shows us this is the failure of humanity because this is a story that, that tucks us with pain, but as we read on in newspaper, we see them being repeated over and over again. Which king can be that righteous one that can deal with all this mess? So here, even in our life, we expect justice, isn't it? We, we should expect justice and care by those in authority. But at the same time, we are also aware that sometimes it doesn't happen. Those kids who were massacred, the teachers who were massacred, justice can't be given to them. Now, with Amnon dead, the next in line to David's throne is going to be Absalom. Absalom the murderer. So the clouds start to descend really down now in chapter 14. And I want to invite you to look at chapter 14 with me. Now, we didn't read the first 20 verses, so I'm going to need your help to look at your Bible. Uh, but I want to tell you this court case that comes in, uh, in front of David, and it's actually a replica of the court case of Nathan, except this is a counterfeit. And both are asking David to repent. The earlier in chapter 12, David repent and turn back to God, and this time around, David's going to repent and turn back to his world. Look at it with me, chapter 14, verse 1. I'm just going to read two verses. Follow with me. Joab, son of Jeruah, knew that the, the king's heart longed for Absalom. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you are mourning, dress in mourning clothes, and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. And so on. So here we have the appearing of the war-hardened, Warrior General Joab. He returns in this narrative. He's not a lovey-dovey guy, but what he sees is there's a separation between the king and the crown prince who is now in the kingdom of his grandfather. And as we read on, we know that the people's heart are with Absalom. So with this tension, is no good for the kingdom, and so he decides to be a problem solver. And so this is what he did. But as we read just now's introduction, you already can feel two dark shades flowing in. What happened? We have mentioned a wise woman. It's actually the same word used for Jonadab. And the advice is to pretend. Who pretended earlier to manipulate David? So this gives us a really bad vibe. So as we come here, um, and the woman comes to David's presence, her role was actually to just manipulate David 
and we shall call this the court of manipulation. There are three things that she did um, that uh, happens in this court case to turn David's heart to her. The first is to pretend to be mourning. So she had this fake sob story. She had two sons. They went to the field. They had an argument. One killed the other. And then the clan wants to kill the second son. And so she has no more um, children left. So she came with this sob story. And the thing is, she never mentioned why did the son murder the other. Was it a manslaughter? Was it a cold-blooded murder? She never mentioned it. Her focus was that emotional sob story. And who bought it? David bought it. The king who should have been wise, he bought it because his heart was on his two sons, who one murdered the other, and, and his heart went out to her, and the woman knew that she has got him. Because here it is, three times she asked David, pardon my son, David said, okay, pardon my son. Okay, swear by the Lord's name that you will pardon the murderous son of mine so that I will have a lineage. And David said, I swear by God. And so that was the first step into the fall of David's kingdom. And then she appeals. How daring she is, but this is what she did in verse 13. She starts to accuse the king. Who dares to accuse the king? And this woman did. Look at verse 13. She says, Why then, you king, devise a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself for the king has not brought back his banished son? And she goes on with this uh, thing about God does not desire death. He desires banished people to return to his own people. So with that first... um, Plot, the second step, he, she accused David and appeals on the people's desire. You know what, David? When you do not bring back Absalom, you have deprived your nation of its future king. Wasn't David the one that was banished by King Saul and ran away, but God brought him back to be king? And she used that kind of picture to bring heaven, you banish the inheritance of your people. And so he was manipulated. Then she went on to the third point to flatter the king that you are like the angel or the messenger of God. Now this flattery was not sincere at all, but David totally bought it. But if you read the passage again, you'll see the subtle change of power play in this whole 20 verse. In the beginning, who was in charge? King David was in charge. He asked the woman, what's up? What's the problem? But by the end of it, Who was in charge? It was the woman who was in charge. And David is the one asking for permission. Look at verse 18. This is how it goes. The woman gave David permission. Let my lord the king speak, the woman said. And the king asked, Isn't the hand of dread with you in all this? How far David has fallen from being the just king to being a manipulated one. And how dark the kingdom will shatter. So having been convicted by Joab the king, the king by Joab the king gave in to his request. And verse 21, he said this, and that's where we continue our reading just now. 21, the king said to Joab, Very well, I'll do it. Go bring the young man Absalom. But here is where David's greatest threat arrives. He brought Absalom back, but he says, No, 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 he can't see my face. So for another two years. Absalom stayed in Jerusalem. 
Whenever there's a royal event, he's left out. Whenever the king walks, he's not supposed to walk. He's like his sister Tamar kept in the house to be forgotten. But no, no, not for Absalom. He's not going to be forgotten. And so he came out of this final plot at the end, which was a genius, but a terrible one. So this is why he said he wanted, he called Joab, Joab, grab me an audience with the kings. And Joab says, I'm not going to see Absalom because the king doesn't want it. So he tried a few times, it doesn't work. He burned the field of Joab. So Joab was angry, pissed off. He came back and said, Absalom, what's up? Absalom said, I asked you to come. You didn't, so you have to come by yourself. And he says this to Joab. He says, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I was still there. Now then I want to see the king's face. And if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So this is a genius because now Absalom asked for the audience and he's saying this. I want to see the king. And if the king says that I'm guilty, kill me. But if not, declare that I'm innocent. Do you think David will kill him? Do you think David will kill him? What has, she, what has he said three times to the woman in the name of the Lord? He says, I'm not going to kill the murderer's son. And Absalom has got his dad. So the ending of this chapter is a really, really dark one because Absalom enters the throne room honorably, now in front of the king, and the king, by kissing Absalom, declared that he was an innocent one. So who is guilty? The rest of them. And this is where the story ends and you'll pick up next week. But dear friends, why did we go through this whole journey? It is actually a reflection, isn't it, of chapter 11 and 12 and chapter 13 and 14. That this time around, Absalom comes out as the counterfeit judge, the counterfeit um, justice. And the woman came in as the counterfeit wisdom. And David turns back to them. Dear friends, as we wrap up this, what we want to see, or are meant to see, is that David's kingdom cracked under the weight of sin and rebellion. We have to ask that question, who can fulfill God's promise to be that Davidic king? There's only one who is perfect enough and sinless enough who can execute the wisdom and justice of God. The world needs a better king. We know it. We need a perfect king who can execute perfect justice, but also set all the wrongs right. And yet, because you and I are also sinners, it gets jittery if he does all the perfect justice. We also long for a king who is able to forgive sinners, a king who can extend healing to those who are broken, forgiveness to those who have repented and atonement for all the wrongs that have been done in this world, in this shattered world that David cannot fix. His sons are not worthy. So only the one son that he has said and prophesied and visions in his vision can. That's the one that you and I read in Psalm 110 that's been repeated in Old and New Testament many times the son that he calls Lord. Let me just read that part for us. You are familiar with this. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of 
Melchizedek. Now, dear friends, we live in a world full of shattered vases and broken lives. And what we had about Texas just now and all the other things, the shattered lives. And you and I have lived long enough, we know there are some of us here who have been badly hurt. But there are also us here who have hurt others. And if you're honest, living long enough, we are always between both of varying degrees. We need that justice, but we also need that mercy. We need that king that can rule. We need that priest that can reconcile us back to God. And that's why we need that promised king of 2 Samuel 7 that comes as our Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember the broken vase that we started with? Uh, why did I start with that? Now it happens that in Japan, there is this form of pottery called the Kintsugi pottery. Anybody knows Kintsugi pottery? Okay, those are artistic one you may know. This is what happens that the, when a vase or a pottery is shattered and broken, they're not thrown away. They bring the shattered pieces in and they fill in the cracks with gold so that the vase comes back. So this is uh, a cheaper version that you can see. So the cracks there serve as a visual record of the object's history that shattering has happened. But yet, the goal that is sealed there is meant to remind the person that it is still a treasured object by the owner. Well, this is uh, Japanese art. But dear friends, when Jesus came, he revealed more than that. When he picked up the shattered vases and shattered lives, he didn't seal it with gold, he sealed it with his own precious blood that he dripped and poured out on the cross so that we who are shattered can be built up if we come to him. Yet, although the history is there, but yet it is said that it is now precious by the crafter who seals it back. So here is a king who will judge and will not close his eyes against evil, but he is also a king and a priest who can forgive and pay atonement and reconcile us back to God. So as we wrap up today's passage, the question we need to ask is not who is it, because we know that it is Jesus, but will we trust in him? Will we trust him if you have been broken, that he will give you the justice you need? Will we trust that he will forgive you because he has paid for your price so that we can be forgiven and be back with him? Because if we are not forgiven, that is a terrible, terrible way to live eternal life. If guilt remains in us, that is a very, very terrible place. It would be amongst the holy ones of God. But He can forgive and He will forgive if we come to Him. Why don't we pray and ask Him to help us? Heavenly Father, we thank You for today's passage that is so hard to read, so painful to see, even the best amongst us, David, who loved you, and for 25 chapters we read of his dependence and love and honoring of you, that he can also fall so badly and fall into such dark places. What about us, Father, that we were not like David, find it hard to accuse him because we are sinners like him. But Father, you have given us the David King, our Lord Jesus, and in him we trust that the justice that cannot be received in this world will be received when Christ returns. The justice that were left 
and the victims who are left in a grave, not vindicated, will find vindication on the day Christ comes. But all sinners who comes to you, because you will forgive us. We don't deserve it, but you will forgive us because you treasure us and you die for us. But we know that those who do not, when the day of judgment comes, there's nowhere to hide. There's no place to hide. There are no stones to go under because you are God who sees and judges everything. We thank you for Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.